Hey, you're listening to Deep Cut. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. And I'm Eli. Each episode, we talk about two movies by one director, their most popular film, and a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We'll also talk about each director's life and career to bring in context and help us view their movies as they may want us to. And this week, we're looking at... Who are we looking at, Wilson? Because it's your pick this week. Yeah, it's my pick. And how, how can I approach introducing this god to our podcast listeners? Well, when we were coming up with the, the concept of having a podcast about directors, the one director that I knew I definitely had to do in this first season was Johnny Toe. Reason number one being, he's the director of which I've seen the most films out of like any director in the whole history. I've seen the most Johnny Toe films. I've seen 22 Johnny Toe films and that's only a third of his entire filmography, which is ridiculous. Um, list every single one. This is how we're going to start the episode, is that I'm just going to read you a list of movies that I've seen. <laughs> um, I've seen, in chronological order, I've seen it. All About Along in 1989, starring Chow Yun-Fat. Um, the Heroic Trio in 1993, starring Maggie Chung. Um, Loving You in 1995. Lifeline in 1997, The Mission in 1999, Needing You in 2000, Help, followed by three exclamation points in 2000, Love on a Diet in 2001, Full-Time Killer, also 2001, Fought Choice Spirit in 2002, that's the one I saw last night, that was the lucky number 22, um, Running on Karma, which is 2003, PTU, which we're going to talk about today, also 2003, Breaking News, 2004. Throwdown, 2004. Yesterday Once More, 2004. Election, 2005. Sparrow, 2008. Don't Go Breaking My Heart, 2011. Romancing in Thin Air, which is the other film we're going to talk about tonight in 2012. Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2, 2014. Office, in 2015. And 3, in 2016. That's that's a ridiculous amount of movies, guys. I didn't really consume a lot of Hong Kong movies growing up, and it was only until uh, I went to college and like started studying film in, on an academic level that I started venturing beyond like Wong Kar Wai and Stephen Chow, which were probably like the most well-known Hong Kong directors or contemporary Hong Kong directors of the time, and. I started watching Johnny Toe movies, Ringo Lamb movies, but with Toe, I just kept on finding them to be enjoyable watches. This is why I can I could just consume so many Toe movies because they're so fun to watch and they're just so easy to consume, but they're all so different. They're not like Ozu films where like they're great. Ozu films are incredible, but they're all like plot wise they're all a similar kind of film whereas with Johnny Toe films they can really be all over the place like stretching between different genres different types of characters different tones they also sort of all think differently like the difference between the two that we're talking about today PTU and Romancing into Thin Air one of them is very it sets its goalposts within the world and everything it does happens on the level of reality. 
but Romancing in Thin Air is working on a lot of meta levels, and like, I don't, I don't know if I can think of another director who has sort of done both of those things that deliberately. And at least from all twenty-two films that I've seen, he doesn't really miss. I don't think there's a there's a bad film in the bunch, even though I I, I do think that maybe Eli and, and Ben might disagree. <laughs> um, which Johnny Toe films have you seen prior to this week's episode? Let's see. What have I seen? I've seen The Mission, besides the two we've seen today. We're talking about today. Mm-hmm. I've seen Election, which apparently I didn't like, but I don't remember why. And I've seen Needing You, which is also with Sammy Cheng, uh, which is in, yeah. and she's in Romancing in Thin Air. Yeah. <clears throat> I think Needing that's, you is yeah, great. five I, movies. Yeah. Big fan yeah, of Needing, Needing You. Yeah, Needing You is fun. Yeah. I've seen, of course, PTU and Romancing into Thin Air for today. I've seen The Mission, uh, which all three of us watched in a class together as undergraduates. Um, and that was a very fun screening. Really, like, brought the class together really well. I've also seen Lifeline, his uh, firefighters movie, which is pretty wild, uh, especially knowing some of the production practices that they <laughs> did or did not take. And I've also seen, in a notorious screening, I've seen Don't Go Breaking My Heart 1, which Wilson showed me. And I didn't exactly connect with at the time. It was a heartbreaking watch. Because I, I at least right now, I, I feel like like the ranking of, of Johnny Toe movies for me, I feel like Don't, Don't Go Breaking My Heart still stands at the top of <laughs> all these films. And So where does and, it stand for you, Eli? <laughs> at, I think right I at think the it's, bottom. Well, it's hard to answer because I think if I were to rewatch it, I would probably look at it through different I, I think I was a little harsh the first time around and mm. I don't know I think there would still be things that might kind of irk me a bit about the sort of treacleness of it but I think it, it's doing some of those irksome things on purpose and being playful about it in a way that I maybe didn't recognize the first time around I'd be willing to give it another shot yeah you should I will say that I sort of had a bit of a similar experience on romancing into thin air where for the first like two thirds to three quarters I was like okay like that's fine sure but I sort of see what's going to happen here and then in the last 45 minutes it completely flips on its head and it does really interesting things yeah the plot twists in romancing I had never seen a film before that like that took so many so many plot twists it's sort of like the plot twist is kind of just the reveal of backstory and how someone responds to it it which is to say that the plot twist is adding character depth which is kind of the best possible thing that a plot twist could be and it kind of answered a lot of my questions from earlier in the runtime about why are these characters kind of just acting so kind of flightily with no explanation other than the genre that they're part of and then the characters get a lot of dimension and it ties into why he's working in this genre with this movie in the first place and it turns out to be more than just answering the question how many times can characters fall off bikes in one movie (laughs) (laughs) it's really a, a full circle kind of movie so like based on these two films which one's your popular and which one's your deep cut like yeah I didn't know. I'll get into it when we, like, officially introduce the films. But I was thinking a lot about the context of this podcast and our target audience as deep cut. 
um, being like a Western, like English language film podcast that's probably going to be listened to by a lot of people in the West. I'm going to dive into a brief overview, a, a brief bio of Johnny Toe. To prep for this episode, I read um, a chapter off of David Bordwell's um, Planet Hong Kong about Toe, and also I watched the documentary by Ferris Lynn called uh, Boundless, which is about Johnny Toe, where he filmed over the early 2010s. Johnny Toe was born in Hong Kong on April 22nd, 1955. Unlike a lot of other directors, or a lot of well-known directors and directors that we've talked about in this podcast prior to this episode, um, he began his career at 17 when he like started working for the local television studio TVB as a messenger. And through working at TVB, he just sort of slowly worked his way up the ranks, becoming an exec producer and then becoming a director for, for TV shows starting in 1973. Working at TVB, Toe was directing and completing around five scenes per day, with around about maybe like a hundred setups that he would be shooting <laughs> and is probably where he got his sense of economical filmmaking. And all three of us being people who have worked on sets before, um, a hundred setups every day is, is a pretty ridiculous number. It's insane. It's ridiculous. Too much. <laughs> yes, too much, but he managed to do it, which is crazy. <laughs> so later on in the eighties, Toe, went back into feature filmmaking, starting off with All About Along, which became a really big hit for him and for Chow Yun-Fat, who stars in the film. And from then on, he sort of, like, shot to fame as this um, up-and-coming director. He directed the Heroic Trio, which I mentioned earlier, with with Maggie Chung, and sort of, like, that, that started catching the attention of the West. And... Um, that was like the first movie where people started recognizing Maggie Chung and you you can see this um, in the Olivier Assayas film Irma Vep where Maggie Chung plays herself um, and the director of the film that she's starring in in the movie shows her a clip of the heroic trio and is like oh this is where I know you from and it's and it's just a clip from this Johnny Toe movie where she's playing a superhero um, saving a baby from a demon cult? Uh, yeah, there, it's, it's a pretty <laughs> crazy movie. I, I do suggest you guys check it out just for the just for the spectacle alone. And so he, he started making these movies. And then in 1996, right before the Hong Kong handover back to, to China from uh, the UK, To and his frequent collaborator, Wai Ka Fai, um, who's a screenwriter, formed Milky Way Image, uh, a production company that specialized uh, in cost-efficient films uh, made by Toe and Y. And Toe says, I decided to establish the company on two principles. Firstly, to make films with our own Milky Way style. And secondly, to make quality movies, whether they were entertainment or other ways. Um, and he essentially became an independent producer when the Hong Kong film market was shrinking. Um... Post eighties and nineties, there, there, like there, there. Everyone talks about the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, and and uh, at the end of the nineties, when there was so much uncertainty, um, with what would happen after the handover, um, 
a lot of directors were losing funding for their films or just like not wanting to take too many risks with their filmmaking. And instead of sort of following the trend, Toe decided to, to forge ahead. Um, and, it, and it did pay off, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, I, I do want to note Toe's working relationship with Waikafei, um, which is very essential. I, I do think that it's hard to 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 watch a Toe film and and not think about uh, what Waikafei brought to the scripts and the stories of the films. He why usually would came would come up with the ideas in the scripts while Toe directed the scenes. The way that they would shoot their films is that they would come up with a story outline, and then Y would write the scripts at night, and then um, Toe would receive them in the morning, and then write his script notes, and then shoot the scenes during the day, and then they would review dailies together, and then work together in the editing. Um, For a lot of these films that they, uh, early on, they shared directing credit. Um, and a lot of, uh, and, um, Boardworld says that Y brought his zany invention and thematic seriousness, whereas Toe brought the straightforward professionalism on set and, and they sort of became a really efficient working pair. Um, other frequent collaborators with Toe, uh, include Chang Siu Kang as the cinematographer for most of his films and Martin Chappelle as a sound editor. Um, Toe is a big fan of Kurosawa. He dedicated a, a boxing film, Throwdown, to him. Um, he also loved Jean-Pierre Melville and Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, however, he himself describes, uh, himself as a cult, not a cultured director, uh, but just the director who knows how to handle situations. Uh, he says, I always mm. think about practical issues first. Um... And uh, in 2011, he was invited to be a part of the jury of the Cannes Film Festival. Um, He's also a big supporter of local Hong Kong filmmaking talent, which is very unlike a lot of other Hong Kong directors who we were seeing, uh, like, starting to work in the mainland. And, and, like, once they thought that there was no hope in the Hong Kong film industry, they they would just leave. But, But Toh at least during the the filming of the documentary which was early 2000 uh, 2010s during the time that romancing in thin air was made he still had hope for the local hong kong film industry and the last thing i want to say about his bio is his style of filmmaking i touched upon this earlier but he's a very economical director toe never storyboarded so he would just receive the scripts like write a few shooting notes and then when he got on set that's when he would decide what shot which setups that he would shoot he also shoots scenes cut to cut which means he does not do coverage so that makes it a lot faster for him to shoot um and but does not give him a lot of leeway in the editing process. But I think like two examples of that that show his, his economical filmmaking is 
the mission, um, which was infamously shot in 18 days, and and the edit was like scraped to the bone. Um, they they said there was like a one to four cut to shoot ratio. So uh, every four minutes of footage, one minute would be used in the <laughs> final film, which means basically you would get one, like he would be using one out of every four takes. And another example of this, which is like, which I still can't believe, um, is the film Help, um, which is this hospital uh, comedy drama. It took only 27 days from start to release print, which in my head I understand it as when they started sh- like writing and shooting the script to when they delivered the print to the to the cinemas so you he That's, made a full that movie. doesn't even make sense it's a 90 minute movie um <laughs> in 27 Jeez. days which I think is pretty superhuman I don't believe this but okay yeah I also don't believe <laughs> I just cannot but, believe it because I, I read it online and I was, like, so intrigued to watch the movie. And it's a really enjoyable movie. It moves so fast. And so much happens in it um, that I'm like, you can't have made this in 27 days. But then I read Boardwell's book. And once again, he wrote that that it took them 27 days to make this movie. The thing that I always find so shocking about hearing about Johnny Toe's rapid, rapid working process is that when you look at the final movies, the setups are all very precise and the camera movements are all very precise and it feels very controlled and that he can exert that kind of control while also working so quickly and basically improvising is Mm -hmm. so impressive. And it's crazy because it's not, he's not really like a, a passion-based director, even though he, he does put a lot of passion to, into his films, he is often seen as, like, he's a, he's like a working director. Like, this is his journeyman. job. Like, mm-hmm. a journeyman. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think part of it is that maybe he's just, I mean, he's made so many films, right? So he's gotten so good at, like, the thing that people always talk about with Toa is his blocking, right? Like, he's so able to choreograph a scene in a very specific way so that all the information is there. And I think that's part, maybe just by virtue of experience and being able to just imagine the scene on the on the screen and just getting it, like getting the right shots for it. And also I think the fact that he shoots scenes cut to cut is actually why his stuff is always so engaging. Like he's he's a journeyman working director, but he, he doesn't feel lazy in his shot choices. It's never, you know, coverage. It's never just, uh, these are two people talking, wide shot, reverse shot and uh shot reverse shot so it always feels different i i don't think like on his list of priorities i don't think dialogue is at the top of the list any (laughs) any time which is what i love because i am a very like visual watcher i think that's what appeals to me the most it's like a lot of like visual storytelling that can be done without dialogue um and i feel like that can be seen a lot in in PTU, which is my popular pick. So why I chose it as a popular pick? I think uh, Johnny Toe is most well-known in the West for his crime films, even though he himself says that these crime films are his passion project films. um, They are what he is known for internationally. So PTU, Exile, Drug War, Election are all part of this group of crime films which sort of brought... Um, Johnny Toe fame in the West and sort of 
marked him has as like um like a genre counter to the art house Wong Kar Wai. Um, and these were also the films that did get distribution overseas. And I also did want to pick um, a Toe movie that uh, my other two co-hosts hadn't watched uh, because I think it's just always fun to, to watch a new Johnny Toe movie. The H- Hong Kong population really um, gravitated towards his romantic comedies and his romantic dramas, which did have, like, the bigger stars. Like, Needing You had Andy Lau uh, and Sammy Chung, who were both really big stars at this time. Which Huge makes stars. sense that they would have that box office draw locally. Um, but I do think uh, PTU and his other crime films um, made him who he was now like known as an international director the way that you're framing this popular versus deep cut choice is an interesting little referendum on sort of how we on this podcast define popular and i mean it gets back to a question of canonization which it you know has been a topic that that the three of us care about since a number of classes with a professor who focused on the topic of canonization and the idea of canonization and who is deciding what is popular and what is quality. We can define that by a box office success or critical success or in the case of Alfredson, infamy. But there's also a question of what's successful internationally versus within the country from which a director originates. I mean, if you were to say that the audience is the Hong Kong audience, I would say it seems like your picks would be flipped, right? Yeah, they would. It would they almost would be. definitely be flipped. Yeah, mm-hmm. like romancing is definitely the popular one right. compared to PTU. Right. But also the thing is, they were both critically acclaimed locally in Hong Kong. And the special case with Toe is that he has made so many movies and he has made so many hits where it's like, there isn't a clear popular pick out of all of his movies. Boardwell says this in his book, like, during that time period, Johnny Toe carried the Hong Kong local film industry. Damn, the man did everything. He did, he did it all by himself everything. and with a bunch of other people, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think ta- talking about canonization and how we think about whether movies are quote-unquote good or not, Um, and I think we can talk about this when we talk about romancing in thin air, is that I think the romantic drama, and and, and it's very much a melodrama in a lot of ways, is not really seen as something to critically appraise, generally speaking, right? I, I don't know if you guys would agree, but it feels that way, and I think it's also the way that I've been brought up thinking about what constitutes a good movie. It's usually the more serious movies that are less melodramatic and i think i have been that kind of person for a very long time and like learning to appreciate that kind of so-called mainstream movie for its craft as that kind of mainstream movie is is quite difficult when you when you think of when you think that only certain kinds of movies can be good or like be considered objectively good and and i think part a lot of what I've been doing recently has been breaking away from thinking about movies in such a objective way, I guess you could say that. Yeah, it, it kind of has to be case by case. Like, anytime I 
try to decide like what the kind of movies I like most are and place a rule around that and like frame my taste in some way. It mm-hmm. feels it feels restrictive and pretentious. And you sort of walk away <laughs> thinking like you're a snob. As yeah, well. exactly. At least yeah. that's what I feel. Like I feel I feel guilty for like for shitting on a popular movie. It's kind of like if it if it works, yeah. it works. We're such not snobs. <laughs> Yeah, making well. a podcast talking about films. <laughs> <laughs> There's an inherent snobbery in deciding that our voices and our thoughts should be recorded and listened to en masse. So, <laughs> so thank you all for indulging us. In our <laughs> That's been our episode. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Wait, That's so the podcast. So what... <laughs> this is our finale. Bye, everyone. <laughs> our existential crisis begins yeah. now. <laughs> So what did you guys think of PTU? I really liked PTU. Um, just general notes is that it's shot beautifully. Mm-hmm. Like the use of wide shots is very striking. I don't have a frame of reference to really understand why I feel like it looks a bit more unique than other kinds of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can give us some idea of that, Wilson. But yeah. Uh, but that the white shots really uh, stuck out to me, like the high angle stuff and even the kind of flat stuff where it's like flat onto a building. But then the white shot is very much um, foot to foot to head. And the way that he frames those in a somewhat white screen, I think, I think uh, really stands out. And I really liked his point of view for the film like in terms of the story. Yes. Like, there's a inherent farcical nature to the story. Yeah. That doesn't really make itself known until the end. But there's something about it that's very interesting because its, it's tone is very self-serious, but it knows it. Mm-hmm. And it knows the whole thing is essentially ridiculous. Yes, yes. That's a difficult tightrope to balance on. A brief plot summary of it is, is that PTU is like a film that takes place over one night. And PTU stands for Police Tactical Unit. And, and it's about... Uh, a like, it starts off with a tense encounter between a detective and a triad leader. And it sort of, like, sets off these chain of events with the PTU, uh, these group of, of police officers, scrambling to find this detective's missing revolver throughout the night. Um, and they sort of have, like, a set deadline. Through the course of that night, uh, the film portrays the mostly illegal lengths that these this PTU goes through to achieve their goals. And by the end, you, you, you sort of, like, realize, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, to, to what end <laughs> did all this shit go down? What do you think, Eli? Yeah, as Ben's saying, it's shot supremely well. I think the use of light and shadows is incredible. There's one, there's one shot that I'm thinking of that kind of stands in for how good Toe is at blocking and, and framing, where... The PTU unit that is helping Lam Suet's character find his gun, the captain of that unit is convincing the members of his unit to go along with this plan towards mm-hmm. maybe like the middle of the movie. And he's talking to them in shadow. It's a wide mm-hmm. where you see his back and the faces of the other police members looking at him. And then he convinces them and he walks towards us into the shadow. And the other policemen who had been standing in the light. They decide to go with him, 
and they step into the shadow too. Like the morality is in the lighting, which is cool. Yes. And also the thing that I'm most impressed by in this movie is that it feels like it is going to be copaganda until it reveals itself incrementally to be pretty anti-cop, which, you know, we're recording this in the final days of 2020, both in America and in Hong Kong and across the world. There's, you know, a reckoning happening over what the role of the police is. And I was wondering how this movie was going to have aged. And it sort of has its cards in place and it knows what it wants to say, with the exception of, I think, in the final shootout, once the PTU captain decides to do the right thing, there is kind of a glamorization inherent in how that shootout goes down of the police. But the final notes of the movie do try to remind us that kind of all the police characters, including the internal affairs agent, they all do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Even though it ends okay for all the main characters, it's still like a little nudge, like, no, these these police members didn't really do the right thing. But I feel like there's so much to talk about with PTU, but I did bring, I one of the reasons I did bring it up today is I think it is one of the greatest examples of um, Toe's power as a, a, a visual director. Like, it, it showcases a lot of Toe's iconic stylistic tendencies. Um, he... Sh- this film, like most of his films, is shot in a wide aspect ratio, which is very uncommon with Hong Kong films. In the documentary Boundless, uh, they were interviewing a film critic, and he was like, they never shoot um, Hong Kong in widescreen because it, it sort of makes the, the city look ugly, and Hong Kong has a lot of short people, so... It, it doesn't really, like, work well for people's <laughs> frames. But what he said, how, how, how Toe combats this, is that he makes films about big groups of people. And what he mm. does so well is how he blocks these groups of people in these wide shots. And you see this basically every scene of PTU. Just the simplest of scenes where you have these officers walking through a street is beautiful to watch building tension just with blocking building relationships just with blocking he is a master at that and he shows us this with this movie other than the very ending there's kind of no big set piece it's kind of every point of tension and conflict comes out of blocking and staging think of the alley scene when the PTU unit is tracking down someone who might have information for them and they start beating up the man and he has an asthma attack and around the corner is a cop who might tell on them if he finds that scene happening or when the PTU unit is infiltrating a hangout spot of Ponytail's men and they are sneaking up the stairs for like a full five minutes That is a crazy scene because it is a really pivotal moment where you see just through action the team coming together. It's sort of like a bigger example of what Eli said earlier about the shot where Simon Yam's character explains to the other people in his unit 
like, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to do this whether you're with me or not, and walks in and they, they follow him. It is a simple action that is effectively drawn out. Yeah. There initially was dialogue in this scene, but Toe just decided to, to cut all the dialogue out and just have Simon Yam's character start to go up the stairs and have his flashlight sort of, like, flicker outside the window, and then one by one, the other members of the unit started following him up the stairs, um, which resulted in this beautiful wide shot from the exterior of the building showing all these flashlights slowly moving up the, the staircase. I think the one thing that steps on that scene's toes is Chewing Chung's score, which kind yeah. of, similar to a moment, like maybe the best scene in the mission, which I think would play a little bit better without music, I think that this stairway scene would rest in its tension a little bit more without the score there. Yeah. So I do think that that the score is one of works. the Okay, okay. But I, I, I do <laughs> think the the score is one of the only downfalls of this movie. And that's why like I feel like that's the only reason why I can't give it a perfect score. Um is because this it's it's a little distracting. Um it cheapens I think everything it's, it's, a little it's bit. It's a tiny bit dated, which yeah. is weird because the it's the mission the mission score is so iconic, whereas this falters a little. Personally, I don't really pay so much attention to music all the time, but like with this one, I wouldn't say that it took me out. Like usually if it takes me out, I would. that's something that's kind of a cardinal sin that would I would definitely notice as somebody who's not paying that much attention, right? But as somebody who was kind of just sitting back and trying to enjoy the movie for what it was, I think it kind of worked. And that scene of them going up the stairs and then they kind of see each other like they're mm -hmm. grounding the stairs it's kind of stupid but they <laughs> they're like stalking each other the cops and then they point their guns at each other there's something funny about it and like how the score is like this self-serious thing and maybe for me the score kind of works as a cliche but almost as if it's meant to be a cliche and maybe that's kind of why I let it work for me like it, it didn't feel like this lazy thing maybe it was a lazy thing in, right. in in the way it was being used but it felt like if i could just watch it as a straight genre crime film that this was just the pieces that it needed to work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and which is why I, I didn't really feel like they, they, it was an issue yeah um and it worked a little bit more for me because i was looking at it as a film that was trying to take itself very seriously to kind of make a point at the end let's jump to the end what do you think yeah. the point like, what, what was the point that was made by Johnny Toe? I mean... When Lam we, we, Su <laughs> finds his gun. Okay, spoiler um, alert. Spoiler we, alert. We already, they're looking for the gun, and they think that... The one of the gangsters One of the gangsters it. has it, and the, their gang leader got gets stabbed at the beginning of the film and dies. And they... The, which leads into this massive shootout at the end where so many other people die. And then... Lamsu returns to the place where he fell and he like scrambles around and then he finds his gun and it's just there which where is he left saying it. that he what he thought was the gun was stolen but really he just lost it because he fell and it was in the trash somewhere he which literally is slipped on a banana peel <laughs> <laughs> and he does it twice twice pretty i pretty great like pretty great moment both yeah. times it's pretty great yeah it really contextualizes the whole film because you watch that and you're like, okay, the whole film is a bunch of cops trying to cover their asses, yeah. trying to 
mm-hmm. trying to uh, help each other for their own good, not to do the right thing, right? Because yeah. some of them were saying, we need to report this, it's a missing gun. Then he finds the gun, and it's not been stolen, he just dropped it and couldn't find it. And it shows that everything they have done has been essentially pointless. Like, the bloodshed at the end of the film in this massive shootout has been for nothing. And has been caused by nothing. Yeah. So <laughs> to, to me, there's inherent <laughs> pointlessness to the entire film, which is the point. Not that the film is pointless, but the motivations of the cops has been based on this trivial mistake that they made. And that to me works a lot for thematically, at least in terms of the, the self-seriousness and how it becomes a farce because of this review. Mm. I like that a lot, Ben. I think an important moment to note is is right after that, where there's a montage of these different officers who earlier in the film were all on opposing sides. There's a district crime squad inspector that's trying to like get to the bottom of why Lem Suit's character is acting so shady. Um, there's Simon Yam's head of PTU, and then there's the other members of the PTU, and there's Lamsu himself, and they're all like recording their reports of of the shootout that happened that night, and they're all like lying in their own ways, um, just to to save their own ass and each other's. Like I think part and of the point, I think part of the point is that it the movie very deliberately depicts cops protecting each other above what is right, and kind of as Ben pointed out, for no reason. Like, there's no there's no need for Simon Yam's character to make the initial decision to defect, to, to make the initial decision to protect, to make the initial decision to protect Lam Suet's character, the detective who loses his gun. Like... And it doesn't seem like they have much of a history either. Like, yeah. he's just like, here's a cop that I need to help because he's a cop. Yeah, it's the... And it's like... It's so annoying. It's... Yeah. it's it's an indictment of the blind loyalty of that decision. Mm-hmm. And I think also, like, if you look at, like, the other scene, like, uh, when Simon Yam's character is interrogating a bunch of gang members in the arcade. Oh, what a great right? scene. Oh, yeah, we got to talk great about that scene. scene. We, can, we should go back to the final scene, but just to talk about this scene, like, the way that he interrogates this one of the gang members is very brutal and demeaning, but there is something about it that it felt like it was trying to frame Simon Yam's character as this hero character, but then making him do something that feels beyond the limits of his authority. Let's frame this scene a little bit. It's it's yeah, Simon right. Yam's character, who's the who's the PTU captain. So in pursuit of the clues to find this revolver, he goes in into an arcade where some very low-level gang members are because he's trying to track down a higher-up gang member. So he finds the cousin of the higher-up gang member, and... It's the cousin, a friend of the cousin, and Simon Yam. And Simon Yam tells the cousin to call Ponytail, the higher-up gang member. And to incentivize him to do that, he just starts harassing the cousin's friend by telling him to rub off his tattoo with his thumb to the point where this man's cheek starts bleeding. And And then Simon Yam just starts slapping this friend over and over again. And the way that it's shot is it's shot from the friend's perspective. It's close on his face as he's getting slapped, and you see him trying, I think, trying to hold back tears and mm-hmm. sort of keep his chin up. And yeah. and when it cuts to the reverse shot of Simon Yam, it's a little bit below him. So 
I think Toe wants us to feel how demeaning and upsetting that moment is for the friend. And meanwhile, yeah. the cousin is frantically trying to reach Ponytail, the higher-up gang member, to stop this harassment from happening. And he can't. <laughs> and you get tension out of the fact that Ponytail's already dead, so he can't yes. reach Ponytail. And this guy can't do it. Yeah, he can't help his friend. Yeah. So it's kind of like this question of, like, what is the limit of what um, Simon Yam's character is going to do? Like, when does he stop? Yeah, and it makes with you feel the powerlessness tactics. and the indignity of being harassed by, by, by Simon Yam's character. Right. And, and you see sort of like, well, it, not in that scene, but in, in a later scene where, where they're where the one that you were talking about with the, the guy with asthma, um, uh, where he has one of his other unit members start kicking the shit out of this guy and, and the guy stops breathing. Um, and like when they realize <laughs> they've taken it too far, they sort of like scramble and they're just like, oh, shit, we, we accidentally killed this guy. So, yeah, I... I, I it's a lot of like like these characters like who are part of the police like think they're above the law and 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 think that they can like get away with anything it's not just that they see themselves as above the law they know they're doing the wrong thing toe repeatedly includes actions and little reactions to the ptu unit that show us that they know they're doing the wrong thing when the captain simon yam kicks a woman in the chest, another PTU member tells her to wipe the boot mark off of her shirt. Okay? Yeah. So they know what the boundaries of what they are and are not supposed to do are. When they cause the man to have an asthma attack, they're frantically trying to get him to breathe again, and they're trying to yeah. stop the other stranger cop from around the corner from seeing what's going on. Right. It's, Toe is very clear about this, and that emotional distance... Wilson, that you're talking about, that yeah. sort of pulls us away from the police characters a little bit, is is necessary in a movie that wants to be critical of the police. So how do you guys feel about that? I, I think it works for the film, especially knowing this is what Toe's um, kind of motivation behind like the story that he's telling, right? Um, that he's not trying to valorize the cops. And I think having the PTU unit, which is headed by Simon Yam, uh, be kind of this group. It's never a character in itself. For me, watching this film isn't like watching a film where there are characters that you're invested in. They all feel like moving parts within a grander kind yes. of story. Yes. And the only one that maybe you get a bit more sense of is Lam Suet's character, but because he's such an idiot, he's kind of like a clown in the story, yeah. you're not really invested him in him as a character. You're just somewhat aligned with him because the consequence of this entire film rests on his shoulders. So you're maybe interested in what happens to him, but not necessarily emotionally invested in his fate. So I, I think he frames it all in this very distant way, keeping each character as like part of a group. There's a PTU unit, there's the internal affairs unit, there's other cops that like work in units, there's gang members. There's never just one character that you root for. <laughs> They're very much so vessels for what the director wants to say in the in a way to me that feels similar to what Christopher Nolan does with his characters in Dunkirk, where they also don't have a lot of specificity of backstory, but they are in this situation that reveals, in the case of Dunkirk, Nolan wants to show the bravery and survival of the British Army in World War II or something. 
And yeah. in PTU, Toe is using it to criticize the police. Like, you can't get too close to these characters because that's not the point. It's, yeah. it's about showing kind of the messed up practices. At the end of the day, it boils down to such a simple point that Toe is trying to make. Like, I mm-hmm. feel like other directors would just use, like, one scene with, like, a, a, a police officer, like, um, harassing or assaulting a citizen to display that. But with this film, Toe's able to extend this simple idea into a full 19-minute film, which I Absolutely. think is incredible. Um, yeah. But, and, like, he's able to, like, focus on what he is interested in, which is, like, experimenting and trying with new things with, like, plot structure and style and just able to to run with that. I think the... For me, okay, personally, I'm a person who prefers films that are, you know, more emotionally engaging, right? And PTU isn't really that film, but it's definitely... What's amazing about it is that within 90 minutes, he's able to introduce so many characters and you understand where they're all coming from and they all have a little arc. Even the internal affairs agent, Lee Chang, like she she doesn't really appear that many times, but she has a very important role as like this character that is above the PTU, above Lumsuit's character in terms of hierarchy, but then is kind of taught something at the end of the day as well. Right. Uh, and also is becomes equally corrupt as the rest of them. Right. Yeah. And he kind of makes a point by having so many agents in the story. And I feel like you could have like a big cork board with all the red lines to kind of look at all the relationships, to kind of understand, like, how the systems of policing become this huge clusterfuck of covering your asses. Right. And why they all end up doing this. Right. Yeah. All right. coming together so into it's this all massive there. shootout at the end. Yeah, and I think, again, that shootout is a little bit of a point when maybe it starts to valorize the police a little bit. Just sort of, you know, that thing Truffaut said about you can't have an anti-war movie because war is depicted excitingly inherently by film but do you think the like i feel like there's a tinge of like ridiculousness to the final shootout yes and no like when i think of an example of a movie that really mutes the cathartic release from violence on screen i think of like you were never really here which purposefully skirts around and holds you at a distance from any violence that happens to avoid you feeling a rush from it and Mm. even if there's a ridiculous dimension to that final shootout, it's, I th- you know, there's still slow motion and there's an yeah. epic quality yeah. to it. You you know that Johnny Toe had a ton of fun shooting that yes. scene. Yes, And smoke. Well, yeah, and and blood also be- because you have all these moving parts that sort of like start slowly coming together towards the end and you're sort of anticipating, anticipating this scene counterpoint right to to what Eli is saying so the thing I really like about Toe's shots is that I mean they're unrealistic in the sense that he has these tableaus where people are just standing still which is really strange when you think about it and that happens at the start of the shootout it's like this group of people they're staring at the other end of the road this group of people they're staring at the other it's this kind of like almost like a western kind of showdown kind of thing Very where there's all different groups of people in different corners of the battle waiting for the first shot to be fired right and the way he films it is he kind of keeps a lot of the action within that tableau he does use slow motion moving cameras you see smoke coming out from the the gunshots and everything happens very much in the white shots correct me if i'm wrong i think most of it happens within the white shots at least for the main shootout 
Right. Right. And there is this epic quality to it because of the slow motion, because of the cacophony of gunshots, because right. of the way that people die being shot by multiple bullets at once, right? And their bodies are flailing around. Yeah. But then in that scene is also the part where he finds the gun, which maybe is kind of this undermining of the shootout where like we have all this cool shit going on but then he finds the gun and he slips on the banana peel during that scene as well right and it's sort of like the full stop to that whole scene yeah so it kind of is like this this joke at the end of the shootout where all this stuff happens and then he slips on a peel so i mean i'm not saying that necessarily that it doesn't make shooting cool but i i would say there's maybe an argument that like you can kind of have your cake and eat it too in a Johnny Toll film. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I yeah, I can I, yeah. I can I can get behind that argument. I think it's kind of both. I mean, I think at the end of the day, Johnny Toll just wants to make fun movies. Yeah. <laughs> so he cannot get away from making a gunfight look cool. <laughs> I feel like okay, before we move on to romancing, yes. I don't know if we've talked enough about blocking, but I feel like the first scene in the restaurant is a really fun scene where blocking oh. and sound is used very well to tell the story yes. in a very in very few shots really so what happens in a in one of the first few scenes so the gang members led by ponytail so ponytail and his gang go into a restaurant right and in that restaurant they have like their favorite table so they go in, the restaurant manager puts them in the wrong table, and then they get mad. They go and move to another table that's taken up by one guy. Who's <laughs> and he's a, he's a really kind of, like, funny-looking man. He's a, really he's a dopey-looking dude. Yeah, yeah. dopey <laughs> yeah. is the right word. <laughs> so he's just like, okay, I'm going to move. And then he moves, and then... So the gang members are now sitting in their favorite spot. So a lot of this is happening in a wide shot, and the kind of favorite table is in the middle. Then Lam Suit's character, who is um, Sergeant Lo, comes in, and sits at that main table because he's the king now and he wants that table. And then the restaurant manager pushes the gang members into the other table and then they push the other guy into another table. So there's this like choreography of people moving through the tables, kind of establishing this hierarchy of like what's going on in the restaurant. And a lot of this is happening in the wide shot. And this dopey looking dude is always there. And then once they all sit down, he starts playing with the, with the text message sound. Right. Or the, it's a call when, or a call sound. Oh, it's a call. Right. Yeah. And then they like somebody keeps calling him. All three of these groups keep picking up their phones at the same time, <laughs> which is just kind of like fun. And then they're like, OK, check the phone. And they're all trying to figure out who is getting the phone call. And this is very important because Sergeant Lowe's phone and Ponytail's phone being swapped is a huge plot point. Yes. Um, in the film, uh, which he kind of sets up in here. Um, yeah. So this is all happening. And then at the end of the scene, Sergeant Lowe goes, the gang members go, Ponytail is left alone. And then another call comes in. Dopey dude gets a phone call, says, all right, cool. Gets up and then stabs Ponytail on the back. <laughs> Which is, when I first watched it, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Because <laughs> I thought this guy was just a joke. Like, he was just like the guy being pushed around. And then he comes around and is the catalyst for the entire film. Yeah, so they, like there was a reason all along, like why they were keeping him in this in these wide shots and keeping him in like all these blocking formations is because he'll he, he plays a, a pivotal role in in the later half of the the scene. I think that kind of playfulness in the blocking and precision in that 
as well. It's, it's something that you see in a lot of his scenes in this film and a lot of his films in general. Right. Um, and like thinking about like what you say about him being an economic filmmaker, yeah. I just like wonder how much you had to think to get think of this. Right. You know? But I also don't think that like it, it would be so hard to like not be on location and figuring out while you're there when you have all these moving parts in front of you. Whereas like thinking it through conceptually in pre-production. So I'm like, oh, is the only way to like achieve this kind of a filmmaking consistently is to come up with these blocking and these setups on set? Maybe. <laughs> and I think the other thing that's also kind of remarkable about doing so much of it in the wide shot is that you have three groups of people in a frame and you control the rhythm of the scene without a cut which is the yeah. so-called lazy way of doing it. Yes. And then using kind of blocking and performance to kind of make the scene move and not get boring is, is quite, it's quite hard to do. I think PTU, yeah, is, is a great example of how Toe is able to work with the most simple storyline and sort of like expand it out with all his stylistic techniques. And on the other hand, the other movie that we're going to talk about today, Romancing in Thin Air, sort of works in a different way where you have this really crazy plot that that Toe is able to like contain and emotionally deliver to you with performances and also with honestly like still very good blocking as well and framing mm -hmm. and uh, a film that is sort of lesser known in the West. It is very highly regarded on Letterboxd, though. I, I do see a lot of people praising it, which makes me very happy because I do think that it is one, uh, it is one of Toe's strongest movies. And in, in the documentary that I watched, the film critic says that, oh, this is um, Toe's most romantic movie. And it's, it's, it's one of the movies where Toe like, fully declares, like, I love movies and I love the power of movies. And I always <laughs> love movies that showcase that. Film nerds love movies about making movies. Yes. Always. It really like does. That, like, oh, like, <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. Cinema like, Paradiso, it, man. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's like some films about making right movies, like, always. I mean, not maybe not always, but like, they. They have, they almost get a pass sometimes, like. Right. But I don't like, think this is a movie that gets a pass. I think, I think yeah, it's, it's, it's just doing good, a lot of things. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it tells the story of this movie star named Michael Lau, played by Louis Koo, who's one of um, Toe's favorite actors to work with. He plays a, a big movie star and a big singer in Hong Kong who gets left at the altar by um, this his co-star and his muse in a lot of films. He proceeds to descend into this this drunken spiral, which lands him in a hotel in Shangri-La, um, in China, in Yunnan, um, run by a woman named Su, played by another Toe favorite, Sammy Chang, who is a woman who's looking for her husband who went missing in the woods you know, seven years ago. I love this movie. I did not know where this was going the first time I watched it. I was really confused by a lot of like the plot machinations in the in like the first half but when things start clicking into place i i like was full-on bawling in the last like 30 minutes of this movie i think watching the first two acts of this movie felt like very 
standard romantic drama fair. It's like two people who kind of want to be together, but there's a thing that keeps them apart, right? Yeah. In this case, the missing husband, the which she is yeah. still thinking might come back at any time. Right. And him being... And his drunkenness. And his drunkenness. And him being her favorite actor of all time. Yeah. And yet she doesn't want to be with him, which is very confusing. Um, but not confusing as in she's confusing, but rather like it's a mystery. Like why? Well, you also, you also don't um, know for a large part of the runtime that he's her favorite actor. But then when the third act hits, it is one of the wildest turns I've seen in a romantic drama ever. Like, I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> How do you summarize this film? Because there's so many things going on. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So we have this movie star, Michael Lau, who ends up in this um, Shangri-La hotel run by Sue, who is pining after her missing husband. And so Michael starts recovering there and gets starts to get closer to Sue and finds out about her husband and also finds out that she used to be a major um, Michael Lau fan, she, her being uh, the 33rd member of his fan club. She has a badge for it and also has all these, all this memorabilia from his films, even a, a motorbike from one of his films um, as well. Michael um, start, uh, confesses his, his love for Sue when they go see a movie that Michael's made about uh, a woman who, who can't get over um, her dead husband. And she finally like says, yes, I'll go out with you. And then he starts getting discovered by all his fans in the, in the city where they, they were watching the, the film and then his management comes and takes him away. She makes this decision to go and see him in Hong Kong and then um, while in Hong Kong, um, when they're about to meet in, a, in a, this big melodramatic moment, um, she gets a call that says the body of her husband was found and also the revelation that he only died a year before and he was only 500 meters from getting out into the clear and into safety, which in turn sends her into a spiral. And so after that, Michael goes to visit her back in China again. Yes. And wants to get together with her. And then she is like too crestfallen and kind of realizing that she kind of forgot about her husband or something like that. And she doesn't want to be with Michael anymore. So Michael gets sad. And his response to being sad is, I'm going to make a movie about that. Which is just a normal response, really. Um, yeah, if you're, if you're, <laughs> from our point of view, yeah. Star, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then he makes a movie about falling in love with a woman that you meet as a famous actor on a spiral. And he, so he makes a movie about his romantic relationship with her, meeting her in the mountains and everything, and how she. So basically, just recounting this entire story between them in his movie, in this movie. And so what we're talking about before this was, uh, before we went on this very long recounting of the story is that that third act shift about this making of the movie was so insane. I think one of the ways that we can talk about the plot of this movie and what it accomplishes is through its series of reveals. So Michael Lau, famous bottomed out actor, meets and starts to fall in love with Sue, a civilian who lost her husband years ago. Okay, pretty standard romantic drama affair, as you say. 
Then we learn that she used to be a mega fan of his and has a bunch of memorabilia. Okay, that is interesting and and sort of starts to create a wrinkle in her behavior. And then further reveal that her late husband went about wooing her by sort of taking on Michael's persona and a lot of the things that he does on screen. Okay, really interesting and further complicates her behavior. And then when Michael and Sue start to try to be together, Sue gets the call that her husband was found and it makes her realize that she can't move past that grief. So Michael responds to all this these series of reveals and reversals by making a movie that shows Sue reuniting with her husband and him surviving his being lost in the woods. And he gives her catharsis, which allows her to move forward and be in a relationship with Michael. So it kind of ends up being about grief and the role of art in processing grief and why Mm -hmm. we have art and why we connect with people at all to begin with. (laughs) But you don't really realize that it is even about grief until maybe halfway through the movie yeah i think it's not just about grief of like like grieving a death but it's also like grieving a relationship as well yeah and you get that with michael's character as well because what does he do for the movie he casts his ex-girlfriend who left him in the altar in that role and then in the movie in the movie she leaves him and he kind of comes to terms with it for himself in the movie and also in the movie within the movie And there is this layering of, like, what storytelling does for how you feel. Right. Yeah. And there's this thing that Toe does in a lot of his films where he likes to repeat actions of characters or repeat shots. And I feel like in this film, these repetitive actions, where it being Michael driving Sue on the motorbike and then later on seeing a flashback of her husband um, driving her on that same motorbike, I think these repetitive actions lead to emotional connection and emotional effect um so simply like without having to like sort of explain to you through dialogue they're able to do it just through repeating images and repeating action i think he builds this motif so that he can kind of create a sense of progression because he kind of changes up what's happening with the motifs i was kind of looking at the first scene again and i didn't realize this at the fir- the first time i was watching this because Maybe it's not that effective, but the first time you meet Sue's character, she's looking at the forest. She's looking at the entry to the forest. She's looking at the danger sign to the forest. And the first time you see this, you do not understand what is going on. It's a pretty confusing sequence, but I would say that if you were to watch this again, then that sequence really takes on some added meaning because that's the source of her pain, right? That her husband went into the woods and didn't come out. Yeah. So he he does that a lot. And like even with with alcohol, that's sort of a motif where that's kind of Michael's primary objective in the start of the film, right? Right. Finding alcohol. And then yeah. that comes up again and again. And then that motif comes back in a twist when it is Sue's character that gets drunk. Right. And there's the empty bottle in her room. Right. Yeah. And so he he does a lot of these things. And it's a lot about information, like kind of the way that that Eli was kind of going through this information. It's like, okay, here's something new that that injects the the story of something different, telling you that this story isn't what it seems. And there's so much of that in this film that keeps changing. I would say it's a very natural way that information is doled out to you as a viewer. Like the the really extended flashback um, 
showing how Sue and her husband got together through these many years of her visiting and helping out at this hotel is revealed to us when Sue does get drunk and does get sick and is tended to by the by the doctor and she tell like begins to tell Michael this story and then it launches into this um really extended flashback. So on that point I'll push back a little bit. I think very little about this movie feels natural to me. <laughs> not in a not in a bad way. It's a movie that's sort of about emotions but it's almost like intellectualized about emotions. And it's because of all the meta levels and the ways it's very deliberately using genre signifiers, I definitely felt pushed out of believing a lot of the behavior a lot of the time and a lot of the event sequencing a lot of the time. But I get what it's doing. And by the end, I think that it is effective when Sue is watching the movie that Michael made about her life. But I definitely don't feel a naturalism about this movie. I mean, a lot of things strain believability. I mean, I think part of that is melodrama and like the extremes of character and their emotions. Like Sue's whole thing where she's like, I want all the things to be exactly the way they are when my husband left. Like, it makes sense, but it's also the way that it's played is so extreme. Right. And Sammy Cheng's character, the way she plays the character is also very extreme. I mean, the part that's like strains the most build of believability is like, how the hell did a husband spend seven years in the woods and not get out or die? Like, <laughs> I just, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, and like this dude, like the cut from like him when they're doing a the flashback of him going to the woods, he's walking around, then it cuts to him with a full beard. And I was like, wait, this is like six months later. Like, why is his beard so big? Then you find out he was there for seven years and somehow got stuck out there. And then it's like, they keep saying that, you know, when he goes in, he's like, I'm the only one who knows these woods. And then he just gets stuck. And I'm just like, fuck, dude. (laughs) I think that the way that Toe's romantic comedies or romantic dramas and melodramas operate remind me a lot of classic Hollywood melodramas where you are pushing these ideas to the extreme to get the most emotional response from the viewer. You have incredible pathos. You have these characters who could do no wrong, who are just being served the worst like outcome in their lives, and you're supposed to feel for them. I can definitely see where you're coming from. There is something outlandish and heightened about the situations and the emotions. But if you do take the film at that kind of face value and like, this is how the world is like, yes, you know, this is like a heightened cinematic world. Right. Then if you're able to get past that barrier, having seen from, at least for me, like having seen so many other films, right. Which try to be naturalistic. If you can get past that barrier and then like, okay, this is a specific kind of cinematic world. Right. Where emotions and characters are thrown away. Then you can start to see like what he's trying to do. And I think, if you meet the film on those levels, it works very well. And like the way that he is doling out information is very skillful in the way that I think part of this is the writing as well. Like when do you find out new things and like yeah. what do they do with your understanding of what is going on? Like one of the key parts is like at the start of the film, it seems like Sue doesn't care about Michael at all being a movie star, right? And you're like, okay, she's just not a fan of this guy. Like, she doesn't care. But then Michael finds the shack where there's all the memorabilia. Then you're like, oh, fuck. 
she loves this guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's confusing as to why she's keeping it under wraps at that time of the in the film, but it just seems like she's just very, very restrained and showing that she loves this actor. But then later on during the flashback, you realize that the memorabilia is actually not hers. It is actually, that stuff is the gift from the husband. So now this motif of the shack with all the stuff isn't just a signifier of her love for Michael as a fan, but becomes a remnant of her relationship with her husband. So that kind of is a twist on the motif. And I, I find that doing something like that makes it so that the motifs that you keep introducing stay interesting because they evolve as you watch the film. They don't evolve chronologically in the story, but they evolve in the way that the viewer watches the film. Toe understands the effectiveness of emotionally recontextualizing objects and motifs. And he uses this heightened affect and performance style that you're citing, Ben, to get to points of nuance, which is kind of the the remarkable thing about melodrama when it's very effective. And also, I think that's why I wasn't... I think that's also why I didn't it's connect just, with Don't, go, don't, breaking don't go Breaking My Heart, because, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think I, wasn't, I think I wasn't ready to look past a heightened affect or world tone to see more depth there. I also think we watched that movie together before we had a very in-depth class on melodrama altogether with the same professor who we talked about earlier, <laughs> Professor Dombrowski. We only Dombrowski. take one class. <laughs> <laughs> we did take yeah. most of our classes together, I think. Yeah. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. I, I was thinking about this and like thinking about that extended flashback in the middle where they explain how she meets her husband. And how broad the comedy and physical comedy is in that sequence. And like, Mm. it is a confusing tonal shift sometimes for me. Because it's like, the first part of the movie is like all this like, like, I'm sad, my husband is missing. But then you're introduced to younger Sue and she's like, lanky and like, her hands go everywhere. (laughs) Like, like just everywhere. And um, there is something of like this weirdness to it where it's like, it kind of feels like not quite the same person sometimes. Um, but maybe that is kind of the point to kind of draw this huge difference in the character. Right. After it's another like sort of extreme, right? You, yeah. you play yeah, the two sides to it. Yeah, the comedy even kind of goes slapstick at some points. Like yeah. <laughs> I said earlier, just characters crash on bikes or cars or fall off bikes or trip and fall like fantastically so (laughs) many times i just think he he always wants like flashy things to be happening on scene like when you destroy a piano you fully destroy a piano when you crash a truck you fully like crash a truck there's no going halfway with this director and i also think they're like i i think when watching his films i'm starting to get that that johnny toe has a philosophy that like either the camera is the thing that's moving or there's something moving within frame. There's always has to be some sort of movement going on. And like, even in an actionless plot, like romancing in thin air or like not a crime film, he is, he still wants to, to insert moments of visual movement. 
like so personally watching this film the thing that was most interesting which comes back to the third act twist so the first thing i noticed watching the film is that the title in mandarin oh yes or in chinese yeah is so weird because there's a number two at the end okay i i wasn't sure if it was a character or if it was the number two it's a number two. It's a number two, and it's the, it's very strange. Uh, so I looked at it. I was like, "Is there? Is this a sequel to a different movie?" And it isn't. And I was like, "What the hell is going on?" So I was confused the whole time, and there was just this thing in the back of my mind. But anyway, so the thing that was interesting watching this was that once they kind of introduced the the dead husband that has is missing and his body hasn't been found, and I started to get to this point of like thinking. Is this movie working toward a melodramatic situation where she is torn between two men because the husband's going to magically appear and survive? Mm. Right? And I was like, is this where we're going to? But then the body is found. I was like, okay, the body is found. So I guess we're not going there. But then the movie within the movie fucking goes there. And I was like, oh shit. Like he is (laughs) doing both things. He's going to do the extreme melodramatic situation within his film in the film. And also the so-called more realistic, at least within the context of this film, conclusion, where he's actually dead. Yeah. So what he, an absolute power like, of like in PTU, like, yeah. gets his cake and eats it too. Yeah. yeah. And, and the name of the film that is made within the film is is the Chinese title of the film without the two in it. So, oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is a very odd... It's a weird choice to kind of put that so far in the front of your film, like confusing everyone's like, why is this a sequel? What what is this a sequel to? Yeah, what if this was called Romancing in Thin Air 2? And everyone's just, what? Everyone's just like, why? <laughs> but watch so so that's the thing that that made that third act so interesting to me because somehow he is talking about what melodrama is within his film. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like he's talking about, okay, this is the most melodramatic thing. And so it is a reveal because Sue is watching the film, right? And she knows what happened. She knows the husband didn't survive. And in fact, when we see Michael show the script to his ex-girlfriend or ex-fiance, mm-hmm. she asks at the end of her reading the script, like, does he have to die? Does it have to be so sad? And he says, yes, it's a true story. Yeah. We watch him film that scene of him dying. And the assistant director is like, okay, we're done with the shot, bringing the skeleton, saying that the character is going to die. But then when Sue is watching it, it seems like Michael has changed his mind during the filming process that he does not die, like her husband doesn't die in the film. And so kind of making this point about cinema being this fantastical fantasy place for you to do something like that for catharsis, for emotional payoff. And to that to me really... The work of processing emotions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like that really brought the film to a different level for me. Like at first I was just like, okay, this is just kind of typical romantic fair. But like when it does that, I was like, okay, he's doing some next level shit right here. Yeah. Also we Within to... the confines of Manny And Drummer. with the song that he he composed while he was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> also we have to call out that in the movie within the movie, Sue is played by another actress until the fictional version of Sue in the movie within the movie reunites with her long-lost husband. That actress gets replaced. Yep, with Sammy Chan. With Sammy Chan. 
crazy. It is a wild left turn for, for Toe to make. It like, is. Uh, like, it is. It works. Understanding that Waikafai wrote this. Waikafai, who's, yeah. who's known for a movie that we've all seen, Too Many Ways to Be Number One. Um, which is amazing. Which is a sliding door <laughs> movie. He is known for his crazy plot. The astounding thing is the way that he's able to to land it emotionally with that scene in the movie theater. I think that is the the crucial scene in Romancing in Thin Air. Definitely. The other thing I remember also is like talking about this. This one was very interesting thinking about it as like a dissection of what melodramatic tropes are and like how they work. Because with the film within the film, so there's a scene in the film meaning the the kind of A plot, um, where when Sue gets the call that the body is found, she leaves the hotel and flies off. And then Michael comes and finds an empty room, right? So that's kind of what happens in the A plot. But then in the film within the film, she finds out that the husband has survived. And what happens is that as Sue, the character in the film, is leaving, Michael's fictional within the film self actually meets her in the lobby, which is a much more melodramatic like timing, right? Coincidental, like, yeah. Just in time timing, right? The yeah. coincidence. And so No, she's in a taxi, kinda, right? And then he Right, yeah, he's in a taxi. Yeah, and then he gets he 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 catches up to her. Yeah. And so there is this kind of showing of the different levels of melodrama and like how far you can take this. You know, like, where does could this story go? Because at the end of the day, you know that the film that you are watching as a viewer is also not real. Just the same as when Sue is watching the film in the film. That's also not real. So then it creates this weird distance, but also not really because it's also the most emotionally affecting part of the film. I don't really know how to, like, reconcile with it as a viewing experience. Where the final third of the movie is you watching a film on the screen within this film. <laughs> it's it's both brain melting and heart melting. Oh, <laughs> there it is. The two most vital organs. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like Inception, not to bring Chris Nolan back into, <laughs> into the Chris podcast, Nolan but... is 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 a huge toaster. Yeah, or Chris <laughs> Nolan is Johnny Toast tethered. <laughs> I'm wondering, because you guys have seen prior Toe films to this, um, I'm wondering how this changes or reshapes the, the way that you think of him as a director. I definitely think that PTU is the most politically incisive that I've seen him, and Romancing into Thin Air is the most incisive I've seen him about storytelling and the role of art and culture. So these might be my two favorites of his. Um, I also really love The Mission and Lifeline, mm -hmm. and I want to give Don't Go Breaking My Heart another chance. So I <laughs> I come out of these two movies with a deepened respect for him, certainly. Within my film education, like in university, like learning that of so many classic Hollywood directors who were working directors, right? A lot of the syllabus that we had was about looking at these working directors and looking at the craft of what they were doing with very popular cinema. And I think Toe kind of lands in that space for me, you know? Right. Um, he's not really a director I'm thinking about necessarily, but he's within the confines of his genres, 
of his means, he's trying to do as much as he possibly can. And I think that's the thing that really makes you respect Toe because like, even within a small budget, he's like, I'm trying to make the biggest film I can make with what I have. Or like, I'm trying to swing front of fences every single time. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes because he does that, the seams show or like, it goes too far or whatever. But you can really see what he's trying to do with every film. Like, um, how far he's trying to take it. So even as a romantic drama, Romancing Athena has so many tropes that it's also relying on, has many of the trappings of a romantic drama, but it doesn't feel as lazy as some of the stuff I might have seen from now, like contemporary Hollywood fare. And so that that's kind of where I place him in my mind. Like he's working in the mainstream, but like trying his best to make it interesting. Right. I will add that I don't tend to... Like the things that I take away from his movies are more along the lines of theme, idea, plot, staging, blocking. I can't imagine myself really remembering much about his characters a few years on from these movies. Mm -hmm. I do care a lot about characterization and interiority. I don't think his movies will ever be my favorites, but again, he always kind of does interesting things and has interesting ideas with Waikafai writing in particular. And he's such a skillful director. He really has the knack of like what to do with the camera. After talking about these two movies, and because these are like two of his be- two of his good movies, right? Mm-hmm. And like after having talked about how he swings for the fences, like I wonder how that would play out watching one of his flops, right? Like mm-hmm. how does swinging for the fences and seeing how that doesn't work out is something that that seems kind of more intriguing to me now, right? Like to see like like what he's doing that's like how he's trying, but like when that doesn't work, right? Yeah. Like well, I don't know whether the film doesn't seen. have any <laughs> Okay, um, but but I would. I'm sure he has some more middling films. Yeah, right? definitely. Even though these were rewatches, I I think they were really great rewatches. Not only because I do love approaching a film just on like the the, the most simple level as possible. Like I just want to like enjoy my time watching a film, and you can never not have that with a Wong Kar- uh, with a. Mm, mm. With the Toe movie. <laughs> Even though, yeah, you can also not have that with a Wong Kar Wai movie. Um, but with a with a Toe movie, you you cannot have like yeah, you, you will not have a boring time. And I think what I found out through the research that I did for this episode, watching the documentary, is that he is a very, very humble director. He knows like what he's capable of and what he's best known for. And he, he always is striving to change and to do better and to try different things. This is why he makes like, he, he makes movies at such an incredible pace is, is that he just like, he just wants to keep on making movies um, there was this point in early 2000s when he even when he was making PTU and the mission when he was like seriously seriously underfunded um, his production company and what happened was that he had to have his crew um, work for him without paying them and the fact that they agreed to do this 
and work until uh, and not get paid until the movie came out and made money not only shows their trust in the film doing well but their trust in toe as a person and as a director being so dedicated to the to the goal of of finishing a film and and having it made that 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 they would work without pay um just to to achieve that yeah it's uh i wrote this in a letterbox review but i i do think hong kong cinema owes so much to johnny toe yeah i'm just very grateful that he has done what he has done Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Uh, you can also give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cut Pod. A special thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. And take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Bye! See you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Love you.